songs. Please be seated. Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We have been looking at this for uh, since the beginning of this year. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle John to a people that were dear to his heart, people that he had lived amongst, uh, people who he had uh, invested in, who by and large are marked by uh, strong, vibrant faith, but also demonstrate to us that even the strongest and most vibrant of believers at times go through periods of struggle, of doubt, of question. And it's at that period uh, in their life when they are struggling that John writes to them to reinform uh, re them or reinforce them uh, and to help them to focus on what is essential in what a series that we're calling Authentic Christianity, laying those foundations so that there is no question about those who are in Christ. Last week as we looked at the text uh, and some of the texts we'll look at again today or at least that we'll be reading the beginning of this chapter, John talked about and reminded us of the great privilege that we have, all who are in Christ, that all who are in Christ are declared to be children of God. And as such, because we are the children of God, we have every assurance, every reason to hope and to believe that we will grow more and more to be like God and less like those who are around us. That's the emphasis, and then what we're going to do today as we pick up in that passage is we're going to see that John builds on that foundation of the status that we have as children of God and deals with the way that we live our lives. This morning as we come, we want to go to the Lord in prayer. Then as we read our text, we'll dig into what John has to say to us this morning. Let's go to the Lord now. Our Father, we do come to you now as we have committed this time to your word. It truly is an act of worship because as we commit this time, we also lean our ears and incline our ears to listen for your voice that you would speak through this text and by your spirit, that we would be a people that are not only growing in our, our knowledge of what your word says, but we are people who are marked by the shaping impact of your word and spirit. Lord, we pray that as we take this word in, as we listen for your voice, that you would be honored, you would be glorified, and we would be blessed and benefited. We ask this with great assurance that you have begun a work in us, and that you have promised you will continue it. So Lord, in this time, be at work in us, whether in ways that are evident or ways that are not. Lord, continue your work until we all reach full maturity in Christ Jesus. It is in him that we pray, he who is the word incarnated himself. Amen. 1 John 3, beginning our reading in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone thus who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May the Lord bless us, give us understanding from his holy word. Well, there's only 35 more days until they tee it off at the Masters in Augusta. That may not mean much to you, but to me it's the way I mark the beginning of spring. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. Baseball kind of helps. That's kind of like the prequel. It's coming. Baseball season starts off. I know it's getting close, but it's for whatever reason, I emotionally don't feel like it's springtime until they tee it off at the Masters. And yet when they tee it off in the Masters, then what also happens within me is that I begin to get the get the urge to get back out on the golf course after a long winter's hiatus. Now, I enjoy playing golf. I've only played with a couple of you who are in the church. It's the rest of you who are blessed. And when I play, I'm not particularly good, but I'm capable of making pretty much all of the shots, just not on purpose, um, or at least not with any regularity. But one thing that is consistently true is that I am able to tee off and drive the ball a long way. And it's not uncommon, probably more common than not, that I do find the fairway. It's just not necessarily the fairway that I'm playing. Um, Those are all realities. They may be funny, sometimes they're tragic, but that's the reality of the way that I play golf. Now somebody may be wondering, what does this have to do with the text? I just thought it was something that you might want to know. So we'll move on now. I'm just kidding. As I was thinking about this text this week, I realized that there's, a, there's something that is, is consistent. It really deals with the issue of goals and objectives. You see, a lot of Christians are aware that we are expected to be different from non-Christians or different from the world. And for many Christians, simply being different becomes the goal, in which case they're not really unlike my golf game, which simply hopes to find short grass someplace. That's the only goal. And yet it's not the goal that's prescribed for us, nor is it the object of the game. For those who are Christians who think that the objective is to simply be different, what tends to happen is they look at the culture, they figure out what is popular within the culture, and then they reject whatever is popular in the culture. And some who have decided for themselves that they are particularly pure, not only do they reject what is popular in the culture, they reject anybody who has anything to do with anything that is popular in the culture, And they assume, therefore, now I'm different. Therefore, I'm clearly following Jesus. I am truly a Christian. But their whole objective is really warped because they're focusing only on what the Scriptures call as a byproduct and not the objective at all. Now, John has said, and we looked at this last week, we who are children of God... We are different. The world doesn't necessarily understand us, but we will inevitably look different. But God does not have a standard that is just generic or even 
The goal is not simply to be different. That's the byproduct of following Jesus. God's standard is much more clear. There is a much more clear objective and, and goal, and that goal is that we become more and more like God. We become more and more like Christ. Or as John says in this particular text, we have lives that are marked by righteousness. And because we have lives that are marked by the righteousness of Christ, then more or less, depending on where it is that we live and what is driving a particular culture, we will more or less be different than the people who are around us. But the significant difference between what God is calling us to and what many Christians mistake is that the latter, the first ones, the people who assume that the goal is simply to be different, they're looking at the world and they are shaped by the world as much as the world itself is because all they do is look to see what's popular and then decide to be something different. What God calls his people to do is to focus on the person of Christ and what Christ has done and what Christ has done for us and what Christ has promised and what Christ has commanded. We continue to focus on God and on God alone and that shapes our values, that shapes our decisions, that shapes our actions, it shapes our entire lives and we become conformed to Christ regardless of what shape of the world or the community where we live in. And that is a dramatically different thing than simply trying to be different. Now, in our text this morning, John builds on the theme that Christians who are children of God become different than those who are around us. Kind of zooms in in what he means that we would be different. As we look at this text, one of the things we realize is John is saying that sin is serious. And it's inconsistent, incompatible, and even opposed to the purpose of Christ's coming, his incarnation. It's opposed to the reason that he gave his life, his atoning sacrifice. And he makes the assertion that true Christians do not and cannot live in sin. In fact, the primary mark of the Christian life is what John is saying here, the essence of what this text is. John says that a righteous life is the distinguishing mark of anyone who has been born of God. I'm going to say that again because that's important and that's what we're going to see here. A righteous life is the distinguishing mark of anyone who has been born of God. It's not the difference. It is the righteousness that is the goal. Now, as we look at this text, there's a couple of things we need to see because John, as he writes here, he writes uh, in a way that we can look at as be confusing. What we need to see is that there are, in, particularly from verses 4 through 10, there are two parallels. John kind of says what he has to say in verses 4 through 7, then he comes back and starts over again and says the same thing in another way, at least in the parallel verses, verse, uh, 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 in verses 8 through verses 10. And then if you were to look at those and you were to put those side by side, you would see that he does so in a true parallel. So verse 4 and the first part of verse 8, they're talking about specifically the nature of sin. And then verse 5 and the second part of verse 8, it's talking about the, the work of Christ. And then verses uh, 6 and 9 and 7 and 10, they parallel one another, and they talk about the Christian life, or what I'll call growth in grace, which is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. But building up to that as a foundation that John is talking about, we're going to look at the other, other two as well because we need to understand what is the nature of sin. And we need to be reminded continually of what Christ has done. So as we begin there in verses 4 and 8, we look at the nature of sin. Now, sin can be defined in several ways, but as we look at verse 4, we see John defines it very clearly and, and simply as, as lawlessness. Verse 4, 
Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. When we hear that sin is lawlessness, it's important that we not make the mistake of just assuming that only those things that qualify as criminal activity would therefore be sin. Everything else is okay, might not be nice. What John is saying is any sin, any sin itself is lawlessness. It's rebellion against the one who has established the laws. In this case, it's God who has established the laws. Any sin creates an environment of lawlessness. Sin is any lack of conformity to the law of God. In any way, we fail to do what God has called us to do or measure up to the law. And sin is any violation of the law of God. Either way, positive, negative, omission, or activity, anything that qualifies a sin, John is categorizing as lawlessness. And if we were to put it kind of in shorthand of what John is saying, any sin is, is essentially this, is saying that I don't care what the law is. I don't care what God has said. I'm going to have my own way. I'm going to do what I feel is right. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what, in my opinion, is in my own best interests. When I think of this text and what John is describing, not only in terms of the sin, but even when we look at the next uh, section or the next point on, in the work of Christ, you might find it helpful, I do, to think of like the Old West, marked by lawlessness where you have a wide range of people just doing what they see, feel, feel best, whatever they want to do, whatever seems to be to their best profit, to their, their, their immediate gain. And then behind that, in any Western that you've ever seen, there's always this arch villain who is profiting the most and actually encouraging people to live lawless lives. Somehow he's profiting, he's benefiting from all the chaos that goes on out west. Well, John's somewhat presenting that picture when he says sin is lawlessness. And then when we look at the parallel in in verse 8, he says this, whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. And so what John is, is saying here is here's the picture of a world where people acting in sin, are acting against the law of God, creating an environment of chaos. And behind all of that is an archenemy who, John says, is the devil. It's characteristic of the devil to be in sin, to encourage sin, to promote sin, and to draw people and drag people into sin. That's that's just his characteristic. But all sin, by its nature, is lawlessness. Now we move on to the second, second part, which is the work of Christ which we see in in verses 5 and the second part of verse 8. And we're not moving away from the Old West theme here. See, in the environment of the Old West, the Old Wild West, where people are coming and going, doing what they want to do, and there's this arch villain there, and every good Western film that you see, whether it's a Wyatt Earp or anything else, an old John Wayne flick, comes in this stranger in the town who's going to bring order, who's going to stop, the reign of terror, who's going to ultimately undo the arch-villain. That's exactly what John is describing takes place here when he talks about the work of Christ and the person of Christ. He says in verse, in verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away the sins, and, that, and in him there is no sin. And so the difference between the coming of Christ and any John Wayne hero, or certainly Wyatt Earp, at least from historical tales, is he is incorruptible. He has not been corrupted. He is perfect. He is pure. 
He is holy. But this stranger comes into this environment, and his purpose is to eliminate the sin. And then as we also look in the second part of verse 8, he says that um, the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So there's, there's two purposes that John is revealing that Christ came to do as he comes into an environment similar to the Old West. One is he's come to take away our sin. And two, he's come to destroy the works of the enemy. Now, he's taken away our sin by offering himself in our place on the cross, and that was accomplished. Jesus came into town, saw all of the unrest, all the chaos, all the sin, all the selfishness, all the lawlessness, and said, here's the way we're going to pay for this because somebody's going to pay for this. I will lay my life down, I will die, and I will pay the fine. And anyone who will trust in what I have done, they are set free from the burden of the guilt or the debt of their sin. You are no longer in debt to and in bondage to sin. You have been set free. You have been forgiven. Jesus has paid that fully. That's how he accomplished it. That's when it says that he came in order to, in order to take away sin. That is the means. John's talked about it. All the scripture screams of it. That's how Jesus takes away sin. It's also how he destroys the work of the devil. But the difference is, is that while our sin has been taken away and has been in full, already paid for, and we are no longer in bondage to it, the destruction of the works of the devil, the first step was taken on the cross, but it has been incomplete and will not be completed until he returns again. Now, the enemy knows that his days are numbered. He knows that they are over. He knows that Jesus came to destroy, and because of what he's already accomplished, he knows ultimately it will, but he still has the opportunity to continue to have impact. But Jesus has already taken the first step, and he is continuing. He didn't start a job, leave it, and is coming back, but he's continuing more and more, to destroy the works of the enemy. And he has done that as well because of what he has done on the cross and because of what he's done in you and me by setting us free. So you and I who are no longer under the bondage of sin, sin no longer owns us and dictates what we do. We are free to say no to sin if we are in Christ, which we were not able to do before we were in Christ. We now, moment by moment, can say no, which undercuts and destroys the power and the impact that he has. And it only makes sense that there are more people who are following Christ and no longer following the direction of the evil one, that his power is little by little being destroyed. The whole purpose or one of the purposes of evangelism is that people would be set free, but one of the effects of that is it eliminates eliminates and minimizes the impact and the power of the enemy. Little by little, it is being destroyed. We also need to realize that as more people come to Christ, it's evidence of the seed of God. That's what John is talking about here. Anyone who has been born of God has his seed in him. The seed inevitably develops into whatever the seed was that went into the ground. The seed that John's talking about is the DNA of God, godliness. But any seed... We can illustrate it. Think about it for a moment, uh, an oak seed, an acorn. And if you were to plant that, plant many of them, inevitably what's going to happen? You plant the acorns, an oak comes up. Now what happens if you plant that oak somewhere near a sidewalk or very near your porch? Initially, not much. Eventually, you'll see a sprout. 
But over time, as the oak develops into what an oak does, it destroys the sidewalk. It destroys any structure that is point near because the oak will continue to expand. It will continue to grow. It will continue to come to full fruition. And anything that, is, uh, that foundation is on it then becomes destroyed. The seed of the gospel, the seed of the DNA of Christ in all of God's believers means that you and I, as we are maturing in Christ, as we're growing in grace, which we'll look at here in a moment, little by little is destroying the works of the devil. Christ has begun it. Christ is at work in us. Christ is at work through us. And that begins to be destroyed. John lays that foundation for us. To get to the question that he really is focused on. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a child of God? And then the more immediate question is, do Christians sin? Can a Christian sin? I mean, if you read what some of the things that John says in this passage, it's a, it's a legitimate question. Can Christians sin? It's important that when we interpret the Bible, we always interpret it in light of other things. This is not an isolated text. This is one letter. John's already been pretty clear about that. In 1 John, he tells, 1 John 1, he says, look, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. Most of all, you're probably lying to yourself. John's already established that ground. The reality is that we, even who are believers, also are sinners. Theological term, we are righteous sinners. We're declared righteous, and yet sin continues to have an impact on us. It doesn't own us, but it continues to have an influence in our lives. And if we were to deny that, we're to deny much of the Word of God. If we're to deny that, we're to deny our immediate need of Christ, our ongoing need of Christ. So we need to read what John is writing here in light of what he's already established, that as Christians, we are not better we have just become different than what we were and therefore different from the unbelievers. But when he's writing here about Christians who sin and Christians who don't sin, he's not, he's not saying that Christians cannot sin. He's saying that it becomes less and less characteristic of it. And there's a key phrase that the ESV has, some translations do not have, that's helpful, really essential for us to understand what it is that John is talking about that alleviates the question about how, how much sin can a Christian have and do Christians sin. And the key word is practice. And the key phrase is practice of sin or practice of righteousness. When I was a kid, I would spend hours in my backyard practicing baseball. And we had a, about a 12-foot privacy fence that spanned from our house to a detached garage. And in the far end of our yard, we had a brick uh, grill that was built into the yard, makes a great home plate. And so I would be back in our backyard, either with friends or often by myself, and we would be playing baseball. And standing in front of that brick grill, you can look off to the left, and our house was a better left field fence than they have at Fenway. It's a only, only 12 foot in center field, which still is taller than most major league uh, fences, and then the garage made a formidable right field fence. The general rule was, obviously, if you played with multiple players, you, you know, get where you could get. If you were playing by yourself, anything short of a home run was an out. 
My friends and I knew every lineup of every team in Major League Baseball at the time. The rule in our game, whether you were playing with many or whether you were playing alone, is that whoever was up to bat for whatever team you were representing, you batted the way they did. And so while I'm a natural right-handed batter, if I was supposed to be a, uh, next in the lineup was a lefty, I batted left. We even got so convoluted that if we, it was a switch hitter, you batted based on who was pitching, if they were a right-hander or a left-hander. And so we batted right, left, we, over hour after hour, and so practicing our swing, practicing our baseball, until we actually developed some skills. To the point that while I'm a natural right-handed hitter and not naturally a switch hitter, occasionally, even in Little League, since I'd batted so much left-handed in my backyard, I would occasionally, when I was bored or if the pitcher wasn't particularly good, I would just bat left-handed just to see how it would work. Occasionally it worked. Occasionally it didn't. But, I mean, it's just developed because I had practiced. I had poured myself into it. John's talking about that same kind of thing when he's using the word practice, practice of sin with the practice of righteousness. The question is, what is it that you are practicing? What is it you're pouring yourself into? What is it that you're seeking to do over and over again? And when he says that a Christian does not practice sin, he's saying a Christian, the one who has the seed of God within them, cannot, it's just antithetical to continue to say, I know this is sin, I know this is contrary to the law, this is not what God wants of me, but I'm going to pour myself into it. We're not talking about stumbling, falling, or, 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 or being tempted. We're talking about going headlong, repeatedly, intentionally, to make that a mark of your life. And conversely, the believer, what John says, is the person who practices righteousness. The very word practice suggests it's something that may not come natural, that you may not necessarily be good, that you haven't yet mastered it, but nevertheless, you're pouring yourself into it that you would practice righteousness. It's essential, again, that we would understand what righteousness is. Righteousness is not about being good. That's a distinction that somehow that we've cheapened the church, we've cheapened following Christ. Many people are good, at least as we would gauge them, but they are not necessarily followers of Christ or children of God. Righteousness is right action that is propelled by right belief. In other words, it's understanding the gospel who Christ is, what he's done for you, and because you love Jesus, there are things that you do or that you do not do, which inevitably drives us to ask the question, what is it that you do or what is it that you will not do simply because you love Jesus? But inevitably, we practice one or the other. John is saying it is inevitable for the child of God to grow in righteousness, to grow in the practice of righteousness because the seed of God is within him. Breaking up the ground that the enemy may be at work, breaking up the ground that is around, but the seed of God will inevitably grow in godliness and righteousness means that your faith will begin to produce itself and show itself by the way you pour yourself out for the sake of others simply because God has poured himself out in Christ for your sake because of love. The issue is, what do you practice? The practice of righteousness is the characteristic mark of the one who believes in Christ. The one who is born of God. The one who is the child of God. My college football coach would regularly scream at us. I can still hear it sometimes. Johnny Majors and his deep hillbilly twang. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. 
what he was trying to get us to understand is this, that if you go through motions, you don't get better. You become what you practice. And so if you practice lethargically, haphazardly, you will likely play haphazardly and lethargically. If you practice with focus and intensity, you're likely to play with focus and intensity. And the same principle is true here with what John is saying about our practice. What you practice and how you practice will dictate what you become. In other words, it's not going to make you a child of God, but the child of God who practices righteousness will demonstrate the righteousness of Christ. They will grow into that, and it will, sh- it will shape our lives. Conversely, the one who has committed themselves to the practice of sin will continue to deepen themselves in their enslavement to sin and the effects not only upon themselves but to the people who are around them. We are people who in one sense are called to evaluate our lives and say, what is it that I am practicing? If you are one who is committed to Christ and is practicing righteousness, even if it seems unnatural, even if you just, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of it, our call is to continue to practicing because eventually that practice will bear itself out and you have the seed of God that's in you. If right faith is propelling you to right action, what if you're one that is practicing sin? And you hadn't really thought about it. Well, the good news for you is the same good news for us because Christ came into the world in order to take away sin in order to break the bondage or defeat the works of the enemy that have the person in sin and bondage. It's not a matter of, here's the road. If you're on this road, you're up a creek. If you're on this road, you're safe. It's a matter of asking yourself, where am I? And if your road is one that the practice of your life is to pour yourself into things that are lawlessness, contrary to God's law, now you have the opportunity to ask yourself, is that the road you want to be on? Here's the hope that you have. By trusting in what Christ has done, you automatically are shifted rows. And you can begin to practice righteousness. It's been said that a pig and a sheep may fall into the same muddy hole. The pig loves it. The sheep will try to avoid it in the future. That's the question that's before us as well. That's the distinction, the mark that John is saying marks the believer, marks the child of God. We will be marked by acts of righteousness. I've titled the message, A Birthmark of a Christian, Righteousness. There's a sense in which a birthmark, while it comes because we're born of God, is an appropriate mark, but most birthmarks I've seen are all different. And so not trying to offend anybody, we might say, it's the tattoo that comes when being born again because it is the same mark on all believers that marks us all as belonging to God is that we practice and grow in his righteousness. My hope and my prayer is that we be more like the sheep than the pig. While there are some pleasantness in sin, our commitment would be to righteousness because there is far more joy and freedom down there. 
by God's grace, he is able, through what Christ has done, to put us there. Let me pray. Our Father, as we come this day, I pray that you would be at work within us, first to enlighten us, that we might truly look at our lives to see what it is that is our practice, to encourage those who practice righteousness, who are more and more reflecting the image of God that is the seed that is within them. Or to give hope to the person who finds themselves continually practicing sin. They may know that there is a way. That way is Christ. But I pray more and more that the righteousness would begin to be evident in our lives, our lives together as we love one another, our lives in this community as we love our neighbors. And that love is not merely a feeling, but acted out through deeds. That through our serving, Christ might be seen that we would be seen to belong to him. And I pray, Lord, that you would be at work in correcting us. If we are ever captured, deceived by the notion that our call is merely to be different. Lord, may we all be conformed to Christ until all of us grow to full maturity in him to your praise and glory, and to our joy that we cannot even imagine. I pray all of this in Jesus.